Bazinga. Uh, hello? Bazinga. Bazinga? Can you hear... So you can hear me? I can hear you. I'm wondering what you're saying to me. I, I said Bazinga. It's... I know it's a very dated reference, but I would have thought you would have got it. You know, the Big Bang Theory, Bazinga, ha ha ha, very funny. Afraid I never really watched a lot of Big Bang Theory. Oh, I got, I just, I got, I've, I've I just got irritated by the laugh track. Fair enough, fair enough. The laugh track is ridiculous. And I've just humiliated myself now. You could have just pretended to know. <laughs> that you had to just that shoot me down been, that like an anti-aircraft gun that would have been embarrassing for both of us if I pretended to know fair enough <laughs> anyway so listeners you are listening to the cinema we see I'm Gabby and this is Chris yes and this is our 32nd episode so it'd be very interesting if we had new viewers after our 32nd episode well, it's possible. Well, you never know. I Sometimes when I start new podcasts, I click on the topic that I know either a little bit about or I want to know more about. And then if I like the kind of format of the show and the repertoire of the people, I will go through their back catalogue and that kind of thing. Did I, did I introduce myself, actually, or did I just skip that? I'm Chris, by the way. Well, <laughs> yes, I, I think... Um, um, as you said, you know that. most people, if they're they've watched a few of these, know who we are. So, but yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> awkward pause. So, what are we reviewing today? We are reviewing Nosferatu. That's correct. At least I hope it's correct. You watched? I watched Nosferatu, and you watched Nosferatu. The one from nineteen twenty-two, right? Yes. So. Good start. We're off to a good start here. How do you pronounce so, the director's name? It's F. W. Mun. Murnau. It's going to back German. Yeah, Murnau. Sounds German, doesn't it? I'm pretty sure it is Murnau. So in this episode, we will be reviewing our oldest film yet. And 98 years old, Nosferatu is F. W. Murnau's taken Count Dracula. Although Count Dracula is Count Orlock in this film for copyright reasons yeah that's right the bram state didn't want them to take the name or anything did they it was a pretty brutal back fight wasn't it i think it ended up with all the copies of the film being destroyed that's pretty rad um i can't imagine why they'd hate the film so much that they'd want it to be erased from history but apparently they did and they had a lot of the copies destroyed but obviously some survived and ended up on movie 98 years later. So being 98 years old, it is a black and white film. It's a silent film, but it's backed by a modern orchestral composition on the movie platform. The reason why I say that is because there's the original musical composition hasn't survived. I don't think anyone recorded it. So there's just different musical compositions based on different versions. I'm not really sure which one this is. It's not that important, I don't think. I think the musical composition for this is does sound very modern, perhaps more modern than it would have sounded originally, of course. It's gorgeous. But I think it, the score is yes, wonderful. I was, I was going to say that, actually. It is a very good composition, and it fits the film well, so it really gets you into the mood, and it 
matches the excellence of the visuals, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you say that because I didn't know anything about the fact that, you know, it was a, a score that came after the film was first shown, that kind of thing. I mean, but... I think I saw Twig to when it sounds really modern, actually. It sounds like a score you'd find in a modern film. And it saw Twigged in my mind then that this might not be contemporary. I knew at the very least it was a recreation, of course. But it started Twigging thinking, yeah, this is perhaps something entirely modern. Yeah, I mean, I really loved the romance theme. For, so whenever it was Hutter and his... Uh, wife Ellen, like um the I thought that was so beautiful. You got really soft and emotional. I mean, my parents always said to me, "When you have kids, it'll make you more emotional." Well, yeah. yes, I mean, I am very emotional. That is true. Um, I almost cried at a Branston Pickle advert today. Um, yeah, so hormones. But yeah, I loved when it, <laughs> it made me I'd really like to know more about that. <laughs> yeah. Maybe another time. Uh, well, yeah, we'll get to that. Um but the thing was with the romance theme is that music can do so much if um your sort of couple that you're rooting for don't have a lot of screen time together. I mean there was there was something about there's something about romance in silent films where it just seems so romantic. Like, um, I don't know. I think it is the lack of dialogue and it's all expression. And I was going to say, they have to have these big expressions where they're grabbing hold of each other and a big smooch. So I think the actress, Ellen, for the actress, the character of Ellen, I'm not sh- Her acting... Maybe I, I don't know. She seemed to have the same expression quite often. She looks Perhaps um so. from the side profile. She looks a heck of a lot like my sister. <laughs> oh, that's important. But um, did you say? Oh, that's important. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> but I was just like, at one point, she um has her face um the right side of her face uh, facing the camera, and I was like, oh my god, she looks so much like my sister. Um, but. I I can see what you mean in terms of she often had like the same expression. However, the thing is, is that I don't know. The acting has to be good in some ways, but it it's not really the the make or breaking of this film. It's more how this film deals with tone. Yeah, this is just a really minor point I was making because you um, raised the character. Yeah, I mean, like, um, I read the, I think his name's Gus, uh, Gustav von Wagheim. <laughs> he was not the first choice to play Hutter. He wasn't even the second choice. He was the third choice. <laughs> um, and he's fine. I mean, I, I just, I don't know. I mean, like, the thing is, you, you come here, you, for Nosferatu, you come. Yes. The vampirism and you stay for the vampirism but you, you but when you're looking back you think of the score and those amazing visuals and everything but what you came for it totally delivers on i think i think nosferatu is just so good in this i think it's better than scores and scores of modern horror films it does make you feel afraid it's 
these these older films are very good because they allow your imagination to fill in gaps and it's very often i would discuss this before people are more afraid of things that they don't know and can't see that they're imagining about rather than th things in the that they can see right in front of them and like many older horror films that really makes excellent use of this phenomena yeah it's like um they talk about an ep epi epidemic breaking out um and i think it's because when uh nosferatu is traveling isn't it that um he fills these coffins with sort of plague-ridden soil is that right or in the not the intertitles but in the narration which comes up on the screen it explains that the was it the accursed earth that the vampire was buried in when they died gives them their unholy powers so it was just the earth he was buried in and it gave him unholy powers now the rats i don't know how they were linked i think the rats they've just been there or they do spread plague or they provide a cover for the vampire's activities so people think there's a plague spreading because there's rats in the earth and actually the people are dying because the vampire is feeding on the blood yeah i like that kind of um but the the sort of i can't quite describe it but the as you were saying like the cover-up of two things seeming to happen simultaneously or they're suspecting that it's two things or just they've got or they think it's this but it's actually that i love it when that that device is used because you as an audience member know more than a lot of the characters in the film and i actually thought that it wasn't used in an irritating way of oh for god's sake how can you think that this is a plague when people have got those things on their necks and they're acting like this and that and all that kind of thing it, i didn't find it irritating because there was something in the way that um it's it, the, the main I, I think a more modern the main conflict is between nosferatu hutter and ellen but the thing is there's so much madness going on around them that you don't necessarily need all that excitement from all the other stuff, but it does aid in the urgency of the seriousness, seriousness of the problem. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, speaking of things that are irritating, I'm going to go to a... not going to um, elaborate on your point, we're going to go to a slightly different point. Speaking of things that are irritating, not about this film, but about later horror films, where you, you have the monster appearing and then the victim stands there motionless horrified petrified and even though they have opportunities to fight back or escape they don't and then slowly the monster comes towards them and then does them in you see that a lot in tv series like doctor who you see in a lot of modern films and although the monster has no supernatural powers their victims are just completely powerless against them whereas in this film i saw that it's clear based on the way the film's written and narrated that Count Dracula, or I should say Count Orlok, sorry, Nosferatu, has the power over the minds of their, of his victims. He has the power to freeze his victims in place while he preys on them. Yeah. And I think what's happened is that in later films, 
that it's almost like that has been just copied over into later films and misinterpreted it. So you end up with these ridiculous scenes in later films where people don't run away from monsters. And it's very interesting because I saw a lot of themes in this film, Nosferatu, that are repeated throughout every horror film into the modern day. It's almost as if this was the Adam and Eve of the horror genre. Yeah, I think so, because didn't the first Dracula film come out in like the early 30s, I want to say? Um so this is. Oh, sorry, I can't help you. I'm not a movie historian. I think that would be your role. Well, I just think of a lot of the monster pictures. That what was the studio that did all the monster pictures? I think it was Warner Brothers. Um, that might I might be wrong about that, but in the 30s they did a lot of things like the the Invisible Man, Frankenstein, and I believe Dracula. And I think that was the first time in American cinema or Western cinema that um you know dracula was on the screen and Did have christopher lee in no because it's too early for christopher lee christopher, oh, christopher yeah. lee did do some vampire films um but it was ooh, like 60s 70s yeah, maybe yeah. um i want to say boris karloff i know he did frankenstein i don't think he ah i know who did it bella lugosi bella lugosi was dracula um in those kind of early films yeah he's going to be more well known than fw mer now i think any of the actors and the director people won't really have any reference point for them that's the thing the cinema's getting towards 100 years old well it's going to be over 100 years old now but i think we're getting to the point where there were a lot of films released very far in the past and perhaps like during the 20th century people remembered the beginning of cinema and they could name the first actors, the first directors, but actually we're starting to get quite history to cinema now. It's going so far back that there's scores and scores of films that happen before people's living memory. Yeah, totally. And like you were saying about how, you know, what we watched is, you know, trying to be as accurate to what was shown in 1922 as possible however it just can't be because of restoration and you know all that kind of thing so it'll never be what people saw 100 years ago but that's a very good point we'll never have the same experiences of people who watched this originally just because our expectations are different because we have cgi graphics now and we have cinemas where you go into them and you add asked to put these goggles on and then stare cross-eyed a big screen while 3d objects fly around um, whereas for the people watching this is i'm sure this will be mind-blowing for the people that watch this and never been into cinema before or perhaps even seen a moving picture it being 1922 and for them to see this it, it would have been staggering would have been mind-blowing for them i'm sure so we're not getting quite the same experience in that respect and of course in a literal sense we can't ever get the old scores back, which is a shame, but I'm sure there are many like scores, but I think in this one in particular, I don't think the when they did it, it was up to like the pianist in the cinema what they decided to do. So that actually gives an idea about how ancient this film is. I just but looking at like the cinematographer for for example, I think it's just so I I just love it because 
it looks as if it's been it looks like drawings right so there's one shot where it's um two prison guards stood next to each other or like a um special governor of the prison and the guard next to him and if you look at them it looks as if someone has gotten like um is it um charcoal kind of thing and has drawn them and <laughs> i when you look at Nos- nosferatu as well it's not gimmicky you know a lot of films in the 50s you could tell it was men in suits and that kind of thing um but you know like um creature from the black lagoon and that sort of thing but when you look at nosferatu the makeup is just excellent and the other thing is i think he only appears on screen um uh nine minutes in total or something like that and every time you see it it's so every time you see him it's so impactful because he his the actor is called max shriek or shrek or something and he shrek yeah i think he might be maybe it's shrek i'm not sure i think it's shrek but um the way he sorry it's the way he keeps his eyes so wide open and they've decided to do things to make him like rodent like it's not like um the vampires you see like a Bella, Bella Lugosi um, romantic kind of vampire. It's like a it's like a rat overgrown, you know, um, and sort of hunchback. It's not very nice to Max Shrek. I've not looked at Max Shrek with the makeup. And, I mean, he does look like a very stern, serious, foreboding person. Um, I just so I think he play. He would have been the perfect actor for this part, and. I think what's really good is that the director obviously understands the limitations of the time and uses it and works within the limitations to produce a very good film. He doesn't try to go beyond. He, whereas with other films you mentioned in the 1950s, there are directors who have tried to go really beyond the capabilities. For it. They push boundaries too much. So you end up with like green men in like, bubble wrap suits and yeah so i think i think that's really something i appreciate the problem is i'm sure there were films around this time as well where the directors pushed the limits of the technology and the capabilities of film crews at the time too much and end up with like something really crap and we don't really even know about them you know, but I think this is definitely a lesson in, although you might have great ideas of direction and a great story, you still have to work within your limits because otherwise if you try to work beyond your limits, what you produce is not something enjoyable. I think a recent film that has been really influenced by this film is The Babadook from 2014. And I haven't actually seen it all the way through. I've only seen like 30 minutes or something. And then it expired off movie back when films used what? to expire <laughs> off movie um movie you're doing a lot better now films are on for um at least six months so thank you for that but um with the babadook there's so many scenes in that film where the creature has got like the long nails and the looming shadow and that is really really scary and it i must get it from nosferatu because 
there's a scene towards the end of the film where he's going up the stairs, but he's it's just his silhouette we see on the wall, and you see his hand reaching out for the doorknob, and it's huge and skeletal, and it's just woo, it's so scary. unnatural, yeah. I know it's it's amazing how that can really create fear inside you with such simple techniques. The thing is, there are CGI films today where you can create something that looks far more terrifying, far more realistic, which isn't scary at all. Whereas this is actually scary. And this is what I've been talking about as well, about the unknown being scarier than the known. And also actors working within within their limits, as well, and not actors, but also directors working within their limits. And this director in 1922 managed to produce a more terrifying serious horror film than some directors today. I really mean that. I think it's just the um, stop motion scenes as well, where, but other other scenes as well, where you see him rising out the coffin unnaturally, and how you see him just slowly but surely moving towards his victims, and you know, it's it's as good as it, it's as good as anything you'd see today, to be honest. And you know, going into slight spoilers, um, but we're about twenty minutes in, so it's fine. Um, People die when he dies at the end of the film again that's done very gracefully you know it's a few shots of him in the sunlight and then you know we see that he's sort of burnt to a crisp and there's like it's it's just done very seamlessly is what i'm trying to say i think they could have perhaps tried something like turning him into stone but and then toppling him over and him shattering I think they could have managed that, but I just get the feeling they might have run out of budget at that point. But you liked it, so maybe I'm just being too harsh here. I mean, I like practically all of it. I mean, I'm trying to think when Hutter goes to the castle, um, what's his name again? Count Orlock? Orlock. Orlock. And, um, but definitely not Dracula, because that's copyright. That's copyright. Um, but it's just, you know, and you see the sh- you see a ship with all these um, sailors on it, and you see loads of coffins, and you see this little town, because it you know, takes place in Germany. I think it's meant to take place in 1838 or something like that. And um, it's just, it's got a real sense of place to it. Um, I don't know. And, and the, the, yeah, there are there is narration in the sense of title cards and that kind of thing but it's and uh, you know a lot of it is exposition but it's fine because being a silent film especially we need that really i think lots of people when i mentioned after i went to work and People asked me, what did you do this weekend? And I said, well, I watched Nosferatu from 1922. It's a silent film. It's got the intertitles, like the title cards. And people said, no, 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 no. That sounds boring, horrible. And I said, actually, if you watch it, it doesn't make a difference. It's really not boring. It's, it's an hour and a half, and it captures your eye so well, I think. Like, you don't want to look away. Exactly. I mean, I could watch a Marvel film with flashing lights and constant stimulation everywhere, or, a, or one of the Star Wars, what they call them, the sequels, the Star Wars sequels, and just not really feel anything. Well, you watch this, the silent film, they've got the intertitles, or like I said, the title cards, and it's got the narration, and not not voice narration, but again, text narration. And 
you're more immersed in in this than you are in films where they've got all the bells and whistles. Plus, you know, I think I complained. I loved watching Joan of Arc, but I remember when we did that episode, I think I complained a little bit about the pacing because it seemed to be, especially the courtroom scenes, it seemed to go on for a bit too long. There didn't seem to be a lot of progression. The reaction shots were all very similar and that kind of thing. This film, it's constantly moving to the next thing, the next thing. In fact, it is broken up by um, sort of chapter endings, like I'll say Nosferatu, end of act one, Nosferatu, act two, act two, and that kind of thing. And I don't, I don't really mind that at all. I quite like chapter things. I mean, I'm a Wes Anderson film, and he likes to do that kind of chapter one, chapter two um, kind of thing. So that works for me. Uh, but yeah, this film does move very well, and it builds tension. And Exactly. I think it's good job you mentioned Joan of Arc because I hadn't realized what, or I'd forgotten. We had done another silent film. I should have mentioned that. But with Joan of Arc, I think this is an example where the director, he is limited with the technology at the time, but he doesn't work well within those limits because it's really just like a storybook, what what he did with that film. He he has some scenes and then there's a wall of text, another scene, a wall of text, another scene, a wall of text. And that doesn't it's it's not enough with these silent films you've got to have although it was a very good score you've got to have as much visual stimulation as possible for a silent film to work and i think the director at all now understood that when he made this or he knew that you needed excellent visuals excellent visual stimulation whereas with joan of arc it the visuals were just telling the story and not much more yeah like um after he did this film he did um a film with some western actors like janet gaynor called sunrise and that came out in 1927 and i believe it was the first film ever to win the best picture oscar tied with a film called wings um and you know i i'd love to see that film because i've heard so many good good things about it but you know, he died at 43 in a car accident only a few years after he did Sunrise. So if he did Sunrise in 27, he died in the early 30s. And he could have he could have done so much more, you know. Mm, I know. and I, I know. It's such a shame, really, because I genuinely believe that this horror film is the, what would they say, the origin, the Adam and Eve, the very beginning of horror films really and it was like the mother that's why i should say the mother of all horror films because anyone who's observant will see techniques and scenes in this film that are replicated throughout every horror film until the present day and the thing is there is sort of a mutation because like i mentioned in the beginning about things being irritating in this film like sorry, um, <laughs> Nosferatu would use his powers over people's minds to hold them in place. They'd be petrified, they couldn't move while he went in for the kill. Whereas in later horror films, directors don't seem to have understood this idea of the style's part of the story. And instead, they've just had people petrified and screaming in the face of monsters they could run away from. So it's... I think that's just a very interesting observation how directors 
have borrowed from other films that have borrowed from other films that borrowed from this originally. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about him is my initial... I mean, I knew that he would be the villain, Nosferatu, but if if I took that away, that I knew, and I just looked at him with fresh eyes when we first see him, and he's like this sort of small creature uh, and seems so lonely in that castle. I initially felt a bit sorry for him and I kind of hoped that him and Hutter would develop like a friendship, companionship or something. But there's very early on you see how big his eyes get and when he sees that Hutter cuts his thumb when he's um, cutting bread um, at the sight of blood. He's like attracted to that. And then um, when he sees the photograph of Hutter's wife and um, again, he's like attracted to, you know, her beauty. um, You realize that there is this sort of um, animal instinct within him that is dangerous. But initially when you first see him, you think, oh, he's kind of, (laughs) he's on his own. And, but yeah. That's a very interesting point because, even though we know what's going to come, that he's going to prey on someone, it's still shocking and it's still scary when you see that in the first scenes because it builds up to it. So it doesn't happen when you expect it to happen. So in one of the scenes, the hutter um, just falls asleep and you think he's going to, going to kill him then, isn't he? When, but he doesn't, he just steals his blood. And what that does is that it lulls you into a false sense of security for what's about to happen next. Which I think is a very good technique. The director knew that if you had just made it a really straightforward film where the vampire attacks at the first opportunity, it wouldn't surprise or shock people. It'd be a boring film. But the director successfully lured people into a false sense of security so that when more violent scenes occurred, it was more shocking, it was more scary for people. Yeah, because I think, I think the sort of I can't pronounce words very well but I think oh. um, it comes for him in that he he had to have Ellen you know he had to pursue her and Giggity. that is his downfall because he doesn't pay attention to the fact that once he's had his wicked way with her it's morning and the sunlight's coming in and there's nothing he can do and he's just trapped by it. Yeah, the story's interesting, actually, because Hutter finds this book, which we later learn has some kind of magical power where people who begin reading it can't stop reading it and have to absorb his knowledge, which explains, well, Count Orlok, Nosferatu's fate. I just think it's not really explained what the origin of the book is, only that it exists, which is interesting. Um, and that is the thing about the story and the plot. Obviously, it's based on the book Count Dracula. So I suppose if I do a movie review, I wouldn't analyse the plot too much. But I, what, what I will say is that it's... Um, Perhaps it's a commentary on destiny that Count Dracula was destined to 
perish and that there was nothing anybody could really do to stop or change it. Also, apparently at the time when um, Dracula was released in, I want to say 1898, Bram Stoker's Dracula, everyone interpreted it as a cautionary tale about sex. And I find that interesting. (laughs) Well, yes, because I, I find that interesting because it's, you know, like especially in the late 19th century, early 20th century, it was seen as um, sex was shameful, you know. Like my mum was telling me not too long ago that, you know, back in the day, and she meant far, far back in the day, it was shameful for a pregnant woman to just walk about in town or anything like that. It, it was, she was meant to stay home until the baby came um, because... What, you don't do that? No, back then, it you were meant to just keep out of sight when you were pregnant because it it was like, if you watch... If, if oh, yeah, you, yeah. I mean, you don't need to explain it. Yeah, because it's like, it's just advertising the fact that you've, you know, had a sexual relationship. And I think... That's I, weird, to be honest. Well, it seems weird to us now, but back then, it was yeah. just the norm. So when this book came out and you know it's it's women who are being pursued and not being able to say no in some ways and you know in Bram Stoker's Dracula I mean not that I've read the book it would be interesting to read the book um I've meant to for many times but I've never got around to it be interesting to know if in the book it's kind of saying the woman is pursuing that sexual relationship or if it's she is um sort of persuaded into it because you know these kind of things have changed so much in the last hundred years that you you wonder hundred years ago why was it like that and Bram Stoker's Dracula made such an impact because of the metaphors you know yes it was um a monster story and scary and it was something that, well, I can't really... I think there might have been examples of a similar sort of monster, but no, nothing as famous as really as Bram Stoker's Dracula. But a lot of horror films, um, I think we've talked about this before, but a lot of horror films are often metaphors for something in the culture. For example, when the film Candyman came out in 1992, that was about, like racism and sort of how the police um how the police treat um black victims of crime and that kind of thing and of lower income and you know look at the film get out like godzilla godzilla basically i mean that's obviously an allegory for yeah something bad godzilla was um the bombings wasn't it like hiroshima and stuff oh yeah yeah, something humbly momentous, destroying a city. And, you know, alien films are metaphors for, her, you know, fear of the unknown and all sorts. Yeah. So horror has always been just a... Uh, just such a fertile ground for all these kind of things. But, yeah, I mean, I'll be honest that... I don't really see it, especially in this film, in this adaptation. I don't really see the 
allegory for um, sex is bad because <laughs> I don't know. I just I just don't really see it. Um, I know it's lazy, but I'm going to go to Wikipedia because this is actually fairly well written Wikipedia article. And it's sure they've had like 98 years to write this article, so it's, so it ought to be pretty good. <laughs> so it does say some very interesting things about what the purpose of the film is, what they feel the plot of it is, but I think they've missed the mark as well. So it's under themes, and Wikipedia says Nosferatu has been noted for its themes regarding fear of the other, okay, as well as for possible anti-Semitic undertones, oh. which part, both of which may be partially derived from Bram Stoker's novel Dracula, on which the film is based. <sighs> and it says, says some other things and embellishes on that point, but I think the, I'm getting the feeling that it's hard to divine what the moral of this story is, what the purpose of the story is, what it's trying to say. I think there's no definitive answer. I think it's only something that the author of Count Dracula knows himself. But I think why I think it might be closer to is that there are supernatural forces which people don't really understand and that human beings aren't the crown of creation, there are things above us, and we're really just at the mercy of fate. Like with Dracula, it didn't really matter what anybody did in the story. It wouldn't have changed Dracula's fate. He was always going to destroy himself. Nobody else could destroy Dracula. The only people who could destroy Dracula in this case, for copyright reasons, <laughs> Orlock, was himself. And that's and there was all of these mentions and allegories to life cycles and nature. And because there was that scene, wasn't there, with the professor telling his students about the life, the cycle of life and death and nature. And it was being compared to, although something unnatural, it was being compared to Count Orlock. In, in some way, they were connecting the two. And then in the end, you see, well, the end of Count Orlock cycle, which is he's he's always going to become too greedy, too evil, and to the point where he just loses his ability to think rationally because he becomes a monster, and then that's what destroys him. Yeah, I, 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 I like that. There's a lot of interpretations of the reading of this film because. You know, when sometimes it's so on the nose, the message the film's trying to tell you, it's a bit like, ah, feels like you're <laughs> being taught something or whatever. You know, we like to think for ourselves as moviegoers. I think, you know, 90%, I'd say, would say that they prefer working out a mystery rather than being told and, you know, all that kind of thing. Um, because it's engagement with um, the, the art. What do you think... Um... Because you mentioned that it could be what it's trying to teach us is the dangers of sex, but then you didn't really agree with that. But what do you think the what what were them looking for? The moral yeah, of the film. Yeah, because like I said, because I hadn't read Dracula, I did some research on this film afterwards and it was talking about how it's an allegory for sex is bad and that kind of thing. And I thought, yeah, I didn't really see that. So if I go back to how I felt when I was watching it, I agree that it's 
um, how everyone can lose their heads when they're in total fear of what's going on. They can't understand the source of something, like when they all thought it was an epidemic instead of a vampire. Um, And I also think that um, it is fear of the other, you know, and this film kind of says, yes, you should be afraid of of strange people (laughs) rather than to understand them, kind of like Beauty and the Beast or something. Um, I mean, anti-Semitic, you said at one point, and... Yeah. This is what it says in Wikipedia. Yeah, a little bit. Um, I think that comes across because he seems to have a lot of money. And um, there's this... Yeah, yeah, there's the stereotypes there. The stereotypes, yeah. And the thing is, although it says on Wikipedia, it says all the things which contradict that. So it says Manau wasn't likely to have been an anti-Semitic person based on um, who he associated with. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, I... it sounds like the clutching at straws with this one. But you mentioned a good point about the idea of this man who lives separate from others and or is seen to be different from others and happens to have a lot of money and how that feeds into typical anti-Semitic tropes. You know, I think because this film is based on a property that is so... Um, we know it in a certain way i can't really put into words i didn't think for a moment that any of the themes in the film came from Manau. i thought it was just purely the text um stoker's text um and how he may or may not have felt (laughs) i think a lot of it was that um like like you said about stoker so what was his name again um brian bram stoker bram stoker I think it's just a case that Count Dracula was a very popular book and I think that Manau enjoyed, probably enjoyed reading it. He really wanted to make a film with it and he knew he could as well with the technology of the time. Popular book, technology of the time, you make a film. I don't think there's any deeper motivation than that. Yeah, I don't think it. Manau, I mean, I know I just said this, but I, I, I really believe that Manau wasn't putting a lot of his view onto it. Yeah, I, agree, I yeah. think it was he was trying to do his best adaptation of what how Bram yeah, Stoker yeah. wrote and yeah I agree yeah but no I mean like um I really really enjoyed this one to watch something um because there's still tons in my favorite decade the 70s I haven't seen like I'm hoping to see um Serpico um I'd really like to see that uh, because I love Al Pacino in the 70s. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, we're still trying to push the, push the sort of, you know, people should watch silent films because uh, there is tons of great stuff in there. And I, like I mentioned before, I, I'm really keen on seeing Sunrise. Uh, if maybe, Chris, you want to buy me the Blu-ray for Christmas or something, you know, I mean, I wouldn't say no to that. In fact, I'd be greatly appreciative. <laughs> Oh, gee. Well, listeners, oh, gee. send me a blue ray me on the spot now, aren't you? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But anyway, oh, so that's a wrap on today's episode, I believe. Oh, thank God. <laughs> yes, I wasn't planning on... Well, what I was thinking about mentioning is any current updates in cinema. I think we're getting to the point in the year where we can start saying what the worst films of this year were. Um. I have a website called Sway Moments, 
where is it? Uh, Looper. And it says the worst films of 2020 so <laughs> far. And it has an awful lot of films. <laughs> I think it basically has every film released in 2020 is described as being bad. I mean, there are some really bad ones here. Just, just You can just tell they're going to be bad. There's one called Lazy Susan. And it's a comedy from first-time feature director Nick Pete. But here's the thing. It's about Lazy Susan, about a woman who sort of hasn't got a life together, who gets a life together. But the thing is, and it says here, the fact that the character is played by a man should begin well, to give you an idea of its I mean, I'm many more problems. excited about looking to the future. I so, want to read the article. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I'm yeah, looking at the I past, sorry. Really we can look at the future later. We're looking at the past now, Gary. Really so, seen... Yeah, it's a bad thing. I mean, some of these are so bad, not really worth mentioning. There's a film called Doolittle, so not Dr. Doolittle, just Doolittle. And I, well, now, from this review, it sounds like he didn't do that. anything. So, <laughs> and also, there's another one. You know, James Corden, it looks like he's going to be in front of another Razzie. For a worst actor. Yeah. So we have them. Um, we have James Corden. And if Cats wasn't terrible enough, it looks like he's. It's like, like he's re- been responsible for another terrible well, film. Well, I, like I said, cool I super can't intelligence. on any of that because um, I. No, I haven't. I just haven't seen many new releases this year. It's so I mean, bad you didn't watch I really it, want you? to get around to seeing Mank. I want to see Mank on Netflix and the David Fincher film. Because the bad. Uh, I want to see, I'm thinking of ending things, the Charlie Kaufman film, which is also on Netflix. Um, but no, I just I haven't really seen a lot of new releases. And Yeah, but again, I am. That was Tenet, wasn't there? We talked I... about this before, which people said it's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. Those released and people. Are but like, again, I didn't see yeah, it. I mean, like, um, there have been stuff. Crap. <laughs> it's straight to DVD. You say, well, it's straight to DVD because of the virus. I'm, ju- I'm just okay. saying that. I mean, sorry, Ali. 1984 is now releasing in cinemas and on HBO Max. Now, I don't know. I I don't think it's going to be bad. It's Paddy Jenkins. It's going to be bad. Man. But I I don't. I'm not going to the cinema until my baby. It's going to be Captain Marvel um, over again. And I will, probably won't be going for a while after she's born. Um, and I'm not too worried. I mean, listeners, if you know anything about me, I loved going to the cinema. I loved when those lights dimmed and the screen would go bright. I loved all of that. But, you know. Yeah. But I'm as, just and the guy that with I a top hat in front of you. Without the cinema for as long as until. I feel I can go back, you know, really want to go back, whatever. I can do without it because, you know, like the thing with today, this you can watch films all the time anywhere. I mean, yes, you know, on streaming services or on your DVD player, whatever, but, you know, there's no real urgency to get into cinemas. Now, I... I do. I don't want cinemas to die, and I know they will die if no one pays money to go towards them. But I'm just saying, for me personally, <laughs> as a consumer, Stop. not as a creator, as a consumer, it's um, you know, it's just life is different now, and you know, it's 
I think you've evolved into the final form of a movie reviewer, a point of total disillusionment with cinema, film, movies, the screen. No, you're at the point where I think, yeah, cinema was a mistake. I'm very, very passionate about films, but I. Gabby's Eagler, cinema was a mistake. You're such a pain in the ass. No, I'm just saying that (laughs) um, the thing is is that we're in the middle of something that's never happened or hasn't happened in the last 100 years, this kind of level of a pandemic. And we, we all don't want things we loved before the pandemic to just die and go away and never return. But we also can't hold on to them too tightly because, you know, we just <laughs> we're gonna wrap this up now. They might actually die. <laughs> anyway. No. What, no, what else was gonna say? I wanted to criticize James Corden even more because I don't like it. Yes. Alright. Thank you for listening, listeners. Oh okay. Yeah, I I, I think We will well, do our next episode. Yes, thank you for listening. Now, I have nothing more to say. <laughs>